Welcome to Confabulation, the podcast. I'm Matt Goldberg, the host and producer of Confabulation. And this week on the podcast, we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, From the very first episode, I've tried to make this podcast uh, an opportunity to get a sense for what Confabulation, the live event, feels like. Uh, Again, Confabulation, the live event, it's usually a night where we share true stories of our lives. It's a curated event. We'll get six or seven storytellers. Uh, preparing a story and then, and then performing it before an audience. Uh, but every year we do this kind of special event that feels completely unlike any of the other storytelling events that we do. Uh, this is the shortest story event. And what we do for the shortest story every year is we get storytellers from around the city to tell two-minute or less stories, uh, brief episodes, brief moments of their lives told as succinctly and, uh, and cleverly as possible. Uh, it, it's a really fun night. It's a really strange night. You get a, still a wide range of emotions, some serious, some silly. And, uh, well, the very first year we did it, we had 28 stories, then 29 stories. And just this past year, we had 30, 30 full stories, which is crazy. To celebrate this very special event, uh, Paul and I have decided we are just going to put up the full event uh, in two podcasts. So what you'll be hearing in this podcast will be the first half of the night, the sort of awkwardly separated first half from the second half is 13 of the 30 stories, uh, but they're awesome, as are the remaining 17. Uh, you'll be hearing these first 13 stories. They are completely unedited. The one thing we have removed uh, will be my little intro bits. They didn't quite come out as clearly as I'd like, so uh, I will be recording those now in the future. You know, I really love the exercise of giving a storyteller a two-minute window. It really forces a storyteller to think about what a story is at at its heart, to think about why why people get up there, why they want to even share these events. Um, As a result, these moments that you get, and I really want to emphasize, these are moments. These aren't complete life-changing although some of them are a little bit life-changing, but they aren't the same kind of uh, larger global stories that we get at a regular confabulation event. That said, they're super fun, they're super interesting, and I think they give you a great window into each one of these storytellers' uh, brains. So, without any further build-up or ado, uh, this is Confabulation Presents The Shortest Story from 2013, Part 1. Story number one. Host, producer, teacher sometimes comedian, Matt Goldberg. Me. The problem was that when she hired me, uh, she was uh, eight and three quarters of a month pregnant. So uh, she hired me and was like, fully with child. Amazing, like such a dynamic person, she's an amazing person. First day there, even though she's super pregnant, she's being really direct and really bold and talking about money. Um, the second day there, she's like, look, we're gonna have a meeting this afternoon, it's gonna be really important, it's gonna really you know, decide what you do with the rest of your time here, Miguel. And I promise you, I just have one meeting this morning, and then I'm going to give you the information you need to do this job. Um, I hear her come in at lunch. She says, Matt, I'll be in there in a second. I hear her go to the bathroom. There's a long pause. And then I just hear laughing. And then I hear someone speaking loudly on a cell phone saying, Stefan, my water just broke in the bathroom. And it's just me and another secret guy in the office peeking her heads out like, I'm sure this will sort itself out. <laughs> it did, but the most amazing thing of all is doing a job you're not qualified for without a boss for like seven or eight months. <laughs> um, what did that clock in at, Meg? 1.32. Yes! <laughs> Story number two, confabulation co-producer, storytelling queen, friend to children everywhere, Taylor Tower. 
my mom built me and my brother a playhouse. But it wasn't just a regular playhouse. It was epic, okay? Right, okay. It had carpet, all right? It had flower boxes outside the window. It had a deck. It was wired for electricity. It had a porch light. Okay, so like all summer I would spend my time in there reading Goosebumps, watching Bill Nye on the little TV that she brought out for me. It was kind of like every kid's dream come true. Okay, so she built me this amazing playhouse. Why? Well, my mom was a single mom and she had a bunch of different jobs to support us, but her number one passion was flipping houses. And she bought her first house when she was 24. It was uh, a shack and she flipped the shit out of it and made it amazing. So she taught herself how to install sheetrock. She taught herself how to install hardwood floors. She could restore any bay window you set in front of her. And she was not afraid to climb up on a roof to replace a bum shingle even though she was about yay tall. So uh, that's my mom, single mom, loves flipping houses. Um, so with this in mind, uh, one Mother's Day, my grandma took me and my brother, we're about seven and five, to Home Depot to get her a Mother's Day present. And what do we get her? A table saw. <laughs> uh, and so I, I still remember the look on her face. She was beaming and all summer was filled with the sounds of buzzing as she built many projects including this playhouse. And so I didn't help with the playhouse. I watched, uh, but my little brother helped, but he was like five, so helped, you know, he was there. Uh, so I remember one moment I was watching them, she was putting the finishing touches on the deck. Uh, you know, they'd already been stained, it was gorgeous. And, uh, you know, I think they were kind of just going through the motions. And he held my brother in his chubby little hand, he was about five, was holding a nail, and my mom had the hammer poised over the nail. And she looked at him and said, do you ever wish you had a dad? And without hesitating, he looked up at her and said, you're like a mom and a dad mixed together. Thanks. Story number three from my hero and yours, the artist, the cycling advocate, and one of the genius brains behind the Lantern podcast, Cam Novak. I've been finding feathers since last August, and uh, I found my first feather when I decided to close my career company. Uh, and ever since then, every big decision, uh, internal struggle that I've overcome, or big life event, I've ended up finding a feather uh, at that time. Um, so last December, I kind of went through this kind of identity crisis, and I didn't really know what I was and what I was doing, and it was kind of crazy in my head and didn't feel really good. Um, so one night in December, I was biking home from an art show, and then just like, wham, I had to deal with it. And there was this internal conversation that happened in my head, and these two characters were created in my head, the stressful cam and the calm cam. <laughs> and this dialogue happened in my head, and they were battling it out in my head going like, you know, the stressful cam was all like, work harder and like do more things and build bigger projects. And the chill cam was just like, yo, man, mellow out. Like, <laughs> relax, like don't be so hard on yourself. And for about 20 minutes as I was biking home, I had this like intense tornado of a battle going on in my head. And it was really intense. I don't know how if I got that across yet. Uh, so, um, so after a little while, I kind of came to this little resolution. And, and it, it, it seemed so simple. It seemed like I already knew this. And it just, three words popped in my head, and, and my identity just felt like it sat into place. And it, I just told myself, just be yourself. And just everything kind of, you know, released itself, and I felt ready to take on the day, uh, the next day, and, and, and life in general. And uh, a, little, a little bit in the, in the distance, I saw that there was a Lafleur's. And I was like, you know what? This moment deserves a poutine. <laughs> so, so I rolled up to uh, the, the you know, fluorescent building, and I uh, locked up my bike, and I uh, looked up to the sky to look at the stars, and, uh, and I saw something else. Um, in the no parking sign above my head, 
there were two holes punched in and there were two 12 inch seagull feathers uh, uh, just sitting there. And I stared at it for a few minutes and then looked around to see if there was any, anyone around. And uh, my eye caught the bike rack that was to the left of me and in the four holes that were uh, uh, in the bike rack, there were four more 12 inch seagull feathers just sitting there. And every time I question my identity, I just think like, I just need to be myself, and the only reason is because I found the feathers. From the Jimmy Riggers, and also somehow my high school, David Pierce. I'm not going to be telling a story about music, though some of you probably were expecting me to. Um, I am going to tell you a story that's completely true and is very, very embarrassing. A number of years ago, while I was working in a very popular sports clothing store, two Jamaican ladies came in and started shopping. Um, I've got to warn you, you're going to hear me try to imitate a Jamaican accent. I mean, no disrespect, it's just, it's, it's how the story goes. It's not as funny without it. So they came in and were shopping and spent most of their time speaking loudly and laughing at what? I still don't know. I really wasn't able to understand what they were talking about. After a number of minutes, one of them handed me a couple of pairs of shoes that they had found on a discount table. They said, I don't know if that size is good, but I sent it to my boy on the island, so I'd go it. I'd take, I'd take. So I said, okay, is there anything else that you were looking for while you're here today? So said, well, I, I'm going to look at a jacket for my boy. So okay. She proceeded to browse through a rack of men's winter coats. And I said, just to let you know, these jackets are probably going to be kind of warm on the island. Yes, I actually said on the island. <laughs> That's not the embarrassing part. <laughs> She said, no, 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 it's okay. For my boy here, I have a boy here. But you know, he don't need nothing special, you know, he just sit there. I said, well, if you need a boy's jacket, why don't I show you to the junior section over here? These are men's coats. No, 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 my boy, you know, he 18, but he just sit there, you know. I said, oh, lazy teenager, eh? I know the type. She said, no, 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 I'm handicapped. Awesome improviser, Mariana Vial. So again, my name is Mariana, it's important. Uh, okay, so when I was about 20 years old, my friends and I decided to go uh, for a working holiday to Europe. So we found ourselves in Galway, Ireland, just a small city on the west coast of Ireland, and I worked as a waitress in uh, the Galway Bay Hotel Restaurant, which is a very fancy four-star uh, hotel restaurant. Uh, now, Galway is known for its university, for its arts festival, and for the uh, Galway races, which are horse races that happen every year close to the end of the summer. And being that I was working at a hotel restaurant, uh, tourism was a big deal, and these races were a big deal. All of my colleagues were uh, hotel management students or like professionals, waiters, and waitresses. Like that's what they did for a living. I was not a good waitress. I lied to get the job. They were only keeping me because they needed me for the races. Uh, as the summer went on, my, uh, we were close to the end, and we were decided, my friends decided that they wanted to go traveling. And I was like, sorry, can't travel. There are these races coming up. Uh, everyone was talking about how what a big deal they were, how crowded it all got, how they had to cram tables everywhere they could find them, how uh, diners would stay till 4 or 5 in the morning. Then I realized, I'm not a professional waitress, I'm not a hotel management student, I don't have to stay for these races, I can leave. But the thought of quitting to my manager was terrifying. But the day came and uh, it was time for me to quit. I had my little vest and little nameplate uh, to give back to my manager, he was a very intimidating guy, beautiful suit, neat beard, uh, smelled amazing. So I go up to him uh, and I'm like, I'm sorry, sir, I'm going to have to leave before the races. And he looks at me and says, it's not a very nice thing to do, Anne-Marie. So I was like, all of this guilt building up to quitting a job and you don't even know my name. So the two lessons I learned from that are learn people's names and don't get caught up in other people's shit. Yeah.
dancer, choreographer, slave to the fringe, Stephanie Robert. Okay, so usually I tell stories about my glass eye and how I'm clumsy or things happened with that or the time I took it out or the time I made money by taking it out. But today I'm not doing that. <laughs> this is actually an accident uh, that happened that has nothing to do with my glass eye, so I can't blame it on the fact that I'm blind from the, from the left eye. Um, so I was about six and a half years old and I'm going down this hill, Hillaberry Crescent in Porcupine, Ontario. Yes, there is a place called Porcupine. Um, and the, the hill's pretty fast, but I was, you know, I had a lot of courage, no hands, and just riding, my hair flowing in the wind. And then there's a stop sign. I get to the stop sign, obviously my brakes aren't working. Um, so the first thing that came to mind was, okay, well, the spokes, the brakes, I need to stop the tire. So I put my two front, my two front feet in the tire. And at this moment, I mean, my hair is flying black, and I don't, I don't have my hands on the handlebars. Um, so basically, what happens is my two feet get stuck in the spokes, and just say, okay, just say I'm the bike, and I'm holding, I'm the bike, I'm holding myself, and I pretty much just got body slammed to the ground, concussion, woke up at home on my couch and realized that some stranger brought me home. My parents were kind of like, it's okay, someone brought you home. And then that's the day I realized that it's not always a bad thing if strangers know where you live. <laughs> Number seven, writer, creative brain, gamer, and brother, Josh Goldberg. I was living in Ottawa for the summer. It was my first full-time job and my first time living with roommates. Uh, one of whom was an 18-year-old Mexican exchange student who was interning at the Mexican Embassy in Ottawa. Uh, that's just to give you guys a bit of context for where this is going. Uh, like most 18-year-olds, he liked to party really hard, stay out late every night, and so did I, but because it was my first full-time job, I kind of wanted to be a bit more responsible. So one Sunday night in particular, he came home at 3 in the morning with a bunch of his friends. I was trying to sleep in the next room, but I just couldn't because they were way too loud. So I wanted to go out there and yell at him, but first I tried calling him, uh, but he was too drunk to understand what I was trying to tell him. So I put my robe on and I went out to yell at them. And as I kick open the door, I'm like ready to like lay into these kids. And I'm stopped because sitting in my living room are not 12, 18 year old university students, but instead 10 to 12 well-dressed elderly men and women uh, who are actually, I found out later, ambassadors from different Latin American countries. <laughs> I swear to God, like totally true. Apparently what had happened was uh, he became quite popular at the Mexican embassy and they had a party one night and he convinced a bunch of them to come back to my apartment for a nightcap. And they were all sort of stunned seeing this like slack-jawed, like pasty white guy yelling at them to keep it down in like downtown Ottawa and just sort of slowly shuffled out without saying a word. Uh, and it was like totally one of, the, one of the most surreal moments of my life. Creator of Bloody Underrated, former co-host of Edge of the City, godslave of the Montreal Fringe, Mr. Ala France. I grew up in the 90s, but instead of like forcing me to just watch 90s television, my parents did the right thing and they force-fed me 60s and 70s entertainment, which is great. And it, it like it it made me just fall in love with uh, with those two decades and wish I had been born earlier. So later on, when I discovered downloading and all that, I started like just hoarding old TV shows and old movies, and I got really hooked on the TV series for The Incredible Hulk. Uh, I got I got really hooked on The Incredible Hulk. Um, now I don't. I've met a lot of the people that, like, I've met a bunch of, I don't know, celebrities that, and it didn't really phase me, 
But a couple years ago, I got to meet Lou Ferrigno, <laughs> who played the Incredible Hulk. And I didn't think it would, like, freak me out, but it totally freaked me out. And it was at, like, Comic-Con, and I go over to him, and he's, he's been seeing fucking it nerds all day. And he just looks at me, and he goes, hi, what's your name? And I go, are you ticklish? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just freaked out, and that's what came out of my mouth. Uh, and he goes, what? And I said, are you ticklish? <laughs> and he says, a little bit under the arms. And I go, OK. And he goes, do you want to take a photo? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we took a photo, and then I leave, and I look back, and both him and his manager are like, that's it, thank you. The morning sun of the stand-up comedy scene, Keith Waterfield. Okay, so uh, this story is from Christmas uh, that just passed. I was visiting my mom in Mississauga, and there's not much to do in Mississauga. So uh, her spare room uh, is her office and the room where I slept. And I was just going through some things, and I got to the desk. And I was like, oh, what's in this desk? And I started opening up the drawers, and I found uh, some book lights. And I like to read by book lights. <laughs> so I reached in, and I took this book light, and I looked at it. And it was this crazy wand-looking book light. <laughs> And, uh, and I, wa I wanted to see how bright the book light could get. So I pushed the button to turn it on, and oh my god, it had vibrated my hand. So much that I dropped it, and then it spun on the floor, just vibrating. And I had to stop it, so I had to pick it up, and that took a couple attempts. So I put it back in my hand, and then tried for what seemed like an hour to turn it off. Because you really had to dig your thumb into this button to turn off this vibrating book light. <laughs> and then it finally, it turned off and I put it back in my mom's desk drawer and uh, washed my hands. <laughs> like I have never washed my hands before. And then instantly thought of how many people can I text this to to make this funny? Because it had to be funny in that moment, otherwise, Christmas would be ruined. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Number 10, actor and enthusiast, Alison Lauder. I don't know why I'm telling you this story. I've never told this to anyone before. So what everybody thinks they're going to hear when they talk to a soldier. Well, I've heard it right out of the mouths of babes, right out of the mouth of one of my old co-workers and former best friends, Jim Ross, 63 years old, Vietnam veteran, and my dear co-worker at the Surplus International, uh, largest surplus store on the downtown core of the island of Montreal, and I worked there when I was 18 years old. During that time, uh, Jim proved a lot of what I was raised anyway to believe a screwed up Vietnam vet would be like, entirely wrong. Uh, it was Jim who had my back when my manager sexually harassed me and I had to report it to the boss. Jim was the one who backed me up and helped get him fired. It was Jim who taught me to print dog tags on this badass machine from 1917 that had printed all these dog tags in both world wars and then some. And what consequentially earned me the nickname of Big Al. 
It was Jim who cried the hardest when I had to quit two and a half years later because my career was taken off and things like that. And uh, we lost touch, unfortunately. So if any of you know how to get in touch with a guy named Jim Ross with six missing toes from gangrene in the jungle for four years, let me know, because I really miss him. Thanks. Amazing storyteller introduced to me by Gerard Harris, who to my shame I know little about, but I loved his story, John Hill. So a couple years ago, I went out on a Saturday night, and I might have partied a little too hard. And I won't say that I woke up in the tub, but when my eyes opened, I was in the tub. I had, I had the shower head, and I was, I was doing this trick I think works where you alternate hot and cold water to make your brain shrink and expand. And that, it kind of works. And that got me through a couple hours. And then I realized that it was Sunday, and I had to get down to the old Mission Brewery to do a volunteer shift. And I was like, all right, John, pull yourself together. You can do this. And I got down there right on time. None of the other volunteers showed up. So what they do when the other volunteers show up is they go outside and they get some of the clients to come in and help you out. So a bunch of the guys from outside came in, the guys that were going to eat later, and I know them and I was shaking hands with them and we got everything set up really quick. And about 10 minutes later, all the volunteers showed up, late. So I saw the coordinator coming around and he came over to me and he's like, hey man, do you mind, uh, do you mind leaving? I was like, uh, well, I'm going to drag myself down here, but yeah, okay, yeah, I'll go, I'll leave. So I was going towards the door and I thought, no, I came down here, I want to do my shift, I want to volunteer. So I went back and I said, hey, do you mind if I stick around and do my shift? I came, I, I came down here. And he's like, hey man, you know the rules. I was like, I, the, the rules? I didn't know there was rules, I, I got here on time. And he said, okay, tell you what, special treat just for you. You can come back and eat with all the other volunteers after. I said, but, but I already ate at, I ate at home. And he said, oh, you have a home? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm a volunteer. He's like, oh. I thought you were one of the homeless guys from outside. <laughs> All right, man, do your thing. <laughs> Number 12, person of interest, Tessa Brown. So I was on a dig in Spain. Uh, we were excavating this Roman necropolis on this tiny island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Uh, and it was summer, so it was hot as hell. It was like 40 degrees in the shade. And there was no shade on the side of the wall where I was working. Um, so I was crouched over this tomb, kind of digging at it with a pickaxe. And I was trying to be careful because I knew that I was sort of getting down to the lair where I was going to be finding human remains. But I was sweating so much that I had like a river running down over my face and it had washed all of my sunscreen into my eyes. And so I was totally blind. But I just sort of like keep scraping and I, I, I suddenly I feel this little I'm like, shit, because I know that I've hit a bone. And so I kind of, I, I, I wipe the sweat and the sunscreen out of my eyes and I look. And sure enough, there's this sad looking little femur poking up out of the dirt <laughs> with a little divot that my pickaxe has just taken out of it. And I don't know if you've ever seen like those surrealist horror movies where, you know, the characters always have insects crawling up out of their skin and, and out of this bone there suddenly comes this wave of tiny red ants. Oh. Hundreds.
hundreds or thousands of them, they surge up out of the tomb in a wave over my feet and past my legs. And that is when I decided that I want to be cremated. <laughs> Number 13, from Uncalled For, Sexty Rex, and My Dreams, Colin Munch. This is so funny, my story is also about ants coming out of bones. <laughs> weird, that's a weird thing. Uh, it's not, it's not at all. Um, uh, every time I go to the fair city of Winnipeg, I witness a bike theft and someone tells me that they're gonna kick my ass. <laughs> right in my face. Uh, the first time I was there was 2005. I was 19 years old, it was my first summer away from home. I was on a theater tour. I was going to school the next year. I, had a, I, I was full of hope and possibility. So of course I'm on the phone with my mom and uh, I'm walking through the streets of Winnipeg and I see this white cube van uh, with two bicycles uh, chained to the back of it and there's this big guy in a leather jacket with no hair and jeans and work boots and he's got these big old bolt cutters the size of me in his hands and he just like chunk chunk the chains uh, and puts the bolt cutters in his belt loop like he's done it a million times and hefts the bikes up and just walks away. And I'm saying, Mom, I, I gotta call you back, I have to call the police. I call the police, I, I file a report, I do all that stuff, and, and I'm kind of wandering around while I'm on my phone. I hang up with the cops, I turn around, and I look back at the van, and there's this man walking towards the van like this. Right? And I walk up to him, and I'm like, hey man, uh, is this your van? And he turns around, and he goes, there are my bikes. And I'm obviously stunned by his hilarious voice, and I, I say, oh, you know, I, like, I tell him what happened, and he's like, oh no, this is terrible. And uh, I, I tell him that I, I called the cops and everything's going to be fine, and, and we hit it off. And it turns out that uh, his girlfriend and him are from Holland, and they're on like a bike tour of Canada. Aww. Yeah, in the city of Winnipeg, put a stop to that. And, uh, he, I, I want to keep in touch because I want to know what happens, and he gives me his business card, and I swear, I can't make this up, the guy's name is Christopher Loser. <laughs> and, you know, I, I can't help myself. I look at his name and I'm like, you know. And, and he looks me in the eye and he's like, yeah, I guess I'm to loser now. Oh, Colin Munch. I love that guy. Uh, that was part one of Confabulation Presents the Shorter Story. Come back in two weeks for the second half, which features stories from, uh, well, Gerard Harris, the king of storytelling, and a bunch of other really great ones that uh, I'm really excited to share with you guys. This episode of Confabulation, the podcast, was recorded at the Montreal Improv Theatre. You can check them out at montrealimprov.com or just find them up here on Saint Laurent, my favorite improv theatre in Montreal. Today's show was produced by Matt Goldberg and Paula Flalo. Confabulation is Montreal's premier all-true storytelling event. Confabulation, the podcast, is a monthly podcast produced and distributed by No More Radio. You can find many other great podcasts at nomoradio.com. You can find out more about Confabulation at confabulationmontreal.com or .ca or by looking us up on Facebook. Just remember, we're the storytelling event, not the South Korean fashion magazine. Take care, everybody. <laughs>